From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Orman DeLois. This is Podcast in Place, a series about life in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. There are numerous different ways in which infectious diseases are tracked to give us an understanding of how they affect our community. One of those ways is something called syndromic surveillance. It's a system that allows public health officials to keep an eye on what's going on in emergency departments and urgent cares around the state. Alaska has been using syndromic surveillance since 2014 to track things like influenza and opioid-related medical emergencies. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, syndromic surveillance has been used to monitor the virus and related health effects. ATME senior producer Quinn White spoke with the person running Alaska's syndromic surveillance system, Anna Frick, an epidemiologist with the state health department. Frick breaks down how the system works, the specifics of personal data that it is and isn't collecting, and how it's not as dystopian as it may sound. They spoke on May 23, 2022. Can you tell me a little bit about what syndromic surveillance is? Yeah. So it's kind of um, a different idea. And I usually explain it by talking about it in comparison to the other data sets that you're probably more familiar with. So at this point, after the whole COVID situation, everybody is familiar with how we do what we call case-based surveillance, which is where um, people get sick, they see a doctor, they get tested, and we count um, how many people have positive results for a given test, you know, how people are diagnosed with a specific illness, which is great in lots of ways. You know, it's super clear what that means, and it comes with a lot of historical stuff, and we know a lot of information about each of those cases, but it has a couple areas where it falls a little short. So one of them is not every health condition that we're interested in can be reported in that way. So, for example, at the start of the pandemic, um, COVID wasn't a reportable condition, so we didn't. it wasn't on that list. People weren't going to send those results to us. Obviously, that changed pretty quickly, but um, there's lots of other conditions that aren't on that list for any number of reasons. And um, syndromic is one way we can sort of estimate what's happening with them in case we see a change happening. And the other space that syndromic can help us out with a lot is... Um, understanding sort of what's happening in our healthcare system at a sort of more of a wide picture. So um, is the total volume of people seeing, seeking care at emergency departments up or down? Who are those people? You know, are there an unusual number of out-of-state people? Are there a lot of older people? Are there more people who have a certain symptom set than usual? You know, like, are we seeing a lot of people with vomiting and diarrhea or are we seeing whatever is normal for us? And so syndromic helps us keep an eye on some of those. It's, uh, sometimes people call that kind of thing an all-hazards approach. But it's, you know, it's a way we can just generally keep an eye on what's happening. That's very low effort for our healthcare system um, because these data come in automatically, which is one of the other main differences. So whenever people at the participating facilities, um, whenever a patient comes in, their EHR or their medical record is updated by their providers taking care of them. 
and that data gets sort of processed by the EHR and a de-identified subset message of that is sent to this database. So it's nice to have a system that is very low effort for our providers who have a lot of work to do taking care of people. Gotcha. So when I was preparing my questions and I was trying to figure out what syndromic surveillance could possibly mean, to be completely honest, I think both of those words are kind of scary words. So can you tell me a little bit more about why it's called that? And I'm really curious to know how we got here. It's funny that you say that because in our like national work group who works on the subject, we've actually been talking about whether we should have a rebranding initiative and rename the whole system because it, the name is a little complicated and people struggle to understand what it means. Let's maybe take surveillance first. So um, surveillance for epidemiologists is not like the FBI in a white van outside your house. It is. It mostly means that we're going to collect data and sort of monitor it in a routine way, which is related to one of the core ideas of epidemiology, which is that we have to understand what is normal in order for us to understand a change in that. And so, for example, if I tell you that there are five cases of an illness today, that doesn't mean anything, right? Like, are there always five cases? Are there never any cases? It makes a big difference if I tell you there are five cases of smallpox versus five cases of flu, right? One of those things is much scarier than the other. And so surveillance is just how, what we call collecting data about health conditions in sort of a rigorous and ongoing way so that we understand so that we understand what's normal and so that we will notice if something changes. Syndromic is the trickier part, and that has to do with the history of the system. So the idea of having syndromic surveillance kind of came about um, back in the early 2000s when there was a big scare about anthrax. There was a whole thing where someone was, you know, sending anthrax in the mail, and so there were some actual, this was, a, you know, a, a terroristic event that happened. And it led people to have a bunch of thoughts about like, huh, how would we first notice that there had been an act of biological terrorism? What would, how would we find out about that quickly? Because um, it might be difficult, especially if the causative agent was something that is unusual or hard to diagnose. And so the thing that they came up with was, well, what if we just kept an eye on what symptoms people had in our emergency departments. And then if we saw an unusual cluster of activity, we would be like, huh, you know, there's 10 times as many people with rash and fever here today. That's maybe an odd thing. And then we could look into it further. And so that's where it came from was they described these sort of like constellations as a syndrome, right? So GI illness is like a syndrome, right? It's, you know, people who have diarrhea and vomiting and other things happening. And that's where that name came from. As the system went on and electronic medical records got a lot better and we got more used to doing work with syndromic, we've made it a lot fancier. So it now can do lots of, lots of things past that. But that's sort of where that idea came from. So is looking at the cases that come into the ER, is that a pretty good indicator of what's going on in the community? It can be. It's better for some things than others, right? Because there are lots of health conditions that the emergency department is like really not where we want you to seek care. You know, like I want you to go see your regular normal doctor for most health conditions. 
but it's a great place um, to keep track of some kinds of illnesses. So some things are emergencies and we do want you to go to the ER and syndrome data is great at finding those. It's also great at noticing people um, changing their behavior if something gets disrupted. So um, remember the 2018 earthquake, how lots of things, businesses were closed right after that because of you know, everything was really disrupted. So people who didn't have their medications or who need, you know, people who needed dialysis and stuff where they usually, they have a system, they go to the dialysis center, they get taken care of, everything's cool. Um, those people were unable to do those things. And so they came to the emergency department. And so um, syndromic can find those sort of changes as well. Gotcha. I'm a little curious, do people ever have like misconceptions about this program? Yeah, it's, um, it's a different program. People often struggle with understanding what the data mean, especially when the first time that they hear about it, because it's a bit different than how we would think about case data. It's pretty obvious um, what case data means, right? There are 50 cases today, and that's more than there were yesterday, and that's, that's what those things, it's kind of obvious to most people that we want there to be a smaller number of cases and sort of what that sort of looks like as an order of magnitude idea. But we don't usually think about syndromic in the same way. So I can tell people how many visits there were for a given condition, but a visit isn't necessarily the same thing as a case, right? Because sometimes a person can go to the emergency department multiple times for the same health condition. Sometimes the person um, shows up and they might have the condition or it, they might not. They're there for an evaluation and they end up having something else. And it can be difficult for the computer to tell the difference between all of those people. And so there's a margin of error that's, I mean, not all lab tests are perfect either, but um, using like computers to read text is less reliable. So there's that component of error that can be difficult for some people to wrap their heads around. And then the other part is I often talk about syndromic data as what proportion of the visits in an emergency department are due to a given condition. So for example, it's um, in a normal year that we would normally see about two and a half percent of visits at the emergency department on any given week would be due to influenza or influenza-like activity, just sort of respiratory viral stuff. And um, that's not a number that's very intuitive to most people. What does it mean to have two? Is that a lot of visits? Is that not a lot of visits? That part's not very intuitive. And then additionally, because um, a percentage describes what part of a whole um, it's influenced by two things, right? Both the number of the event that you're looking at and the total number of visits. So if you have an event like COVID where there's big disruptions in how people use the emergency department and big changes in how many people have COVID, the, both of those numbers are influencing the value of the percent that I'm reporting. And so it can sometimes change in ways that people don't expect, you know, right? I think the easiest example is right at the start of the pandemic when everyone kind of stopped going to the emergency department. And so the total volume just tanked like this. It went down to, um, it, it was down to like half of what it usually is. 
and then it stayed like that for a while and then before slowly rising and then staying at about 80% of normal for a long time after that. And so um, the rates looked crazy because for some conditions, people could stay home. They didn't seek care. But for other conditions, you know, it was about the same number of people having overdoses, but the denominator was much, much smaller. So it looked like the rate went much higher. And so understanding those nuances requires a level of like math and sort of thinking about the number that is much greater than you need for some other kinds of metrics. And people definitely have trouble with that. So how does the data from syndromic surveillance help us understand COVID and other infectious diseases? It's a really great tool for um, trending things. So it's a it's one of the easiest ways to keep track of things that are going to change a lot week to week. So for influenza, where we expect it to be kind of quiet for a while, and then in the fall to like at some point to start increasing and have like a big sort of peak and then do some other stuff, maybe go down, maybe stay flat. Um, it's great at sort of showing us that shape. Um, the data come in really fast. And so for conditions that we're interested in following um, on a really tight time scale, um, it is faster than lab results. And so it can be a handy way if we're, for us to sort of know if things are going up or down right now. It can also be helpful as a way for us to uh, look for conditions where we're interested, you know, people are going to get reported to us as a case, but we want to know sort of how sick are they. And if we find them in the emergency department data, that indicates that they are sick enough to go to the hospital. And so that can help us keep track of some of those things as well. So what exactly does this data tell us? Is it providing like daily stats on COVID cases and other infectious diseases, or is it telling us more about how the virus mutates and who might be getting it? Its purpose for COVID is mostly to tell us about, it's a way to approximate sort of two important things. One of those is how busy are our emergency departments, and that's um, an important factor that we're interested in considering. We also, of course, want to listen to our hospitals, and, and you know, if they tell us they're super busy, you know, that's an important data source too, but this is one way we can sort of numerically demonstrate that to people. It can also help us tell, you know, we can compare it to how many cases we're counting, and that will, can help us see how sick people are getting. Are people getting sick enough that they have to go to the emergency department, or are we still having a lot of cases and syndromic is showing not a lot of activity? Maybe people aren't getting that sick and they're able to stay home. And we can also continue to compare what we're seeing in syndromic, what we're seeing in case counts, and what we know from research and from virology data and look at places where the data sources are telling us different things to look for holes, right? So if we know that the strain of the virus that we're seeing right now is one that's known for being mild, but we are seeing more emergency department activity than we'd expect, that tells us that people aren't getting the resources that they need and they're having to go to the emergency department to get stuff. Um, and so we can use that to recognize, okay, maybe we need to look at providing more hope. Maybe there aren't enough testing sites in this area. People are having to go to the ED to get tested or um, sort of other ideas like that. We'll be right back.
Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So, if you're between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org forward slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Quinn's interview with Anna Frick. So what is the ultimate goal of syndromic surveillance? Um, it doesn't have just, so I guess it's our overall goal as a whole department is that we want everyone to be as healthy as they can be and to live happy, fulfilling lives that, um, that they enjoy. And so syndromic is a tool in furthering that goal. It doesn't have a ton of goals sort of of itself. It is a tool. Do you have any examples of this tool kind of working in action, I guess? Yeah. So, um, well, you can see data from this in our flu snapshots and in our weekly COVID reports. Um, We use these data a lot for overdose work because we have um, it's one of the tools that we have that lets us look for non-fatal overdoses. A lot of um, the traditional ways we've looked at that kind of stuff has been through people's death records, but people who have died are, you know, no longer, um, they, are, they are gone now. And so um, there's not that much we can do for them. But people who have had an overdose but are still alive, are they're out there and they might overdose again, they might be able to be helped and, you know, move on to um, hopefully a place of not needing to use substances in that way anymore. And so we're really interested in keeping track of those people. We use that data um, as a data source to sort of keep track of how many overdoses are happening, but also to look for changes in our overdose activity. So if I see spikes um, or if I see, you know, unusual new keywords jump in, I can talk to people who work in that area and we can get information out and sort of pass out warnings. So we did that, I guess it was last year in the spring, we had a whole bunch of activity. Um, We had unusual heroin activity that we think now was related to fentanyl. And when we noticed those unusual number of events, we were able to reach out and we taught, we did a whole bunch of media outreach and we tried to get the word out to um, people who are using heroin that it was really important that they test their drugs before they use them using fentanyl test strips so that they would know um, what they had, what they were getting and how strong it was likely to be. And we also really pushed some other harm reduction messages like don't use drugs alone because if you're by yourself and your breathing stops, you, you are going to die. You cannot really be helped. But if there's someone nearby who can notice that and give you naloxone, you can survive. And so, um, you know, we're able to push out those kinds of targeted messages. We're also, um, my colleagues down in suicide prevention really like these data as well because they are another group of Um, public health professionals who's had to sort of only work with death data for a long time. But they also, same same sort of thing, you know, people who have died are no longer available for us to help. And so um, having access to non-fatal suicide attempt data has been really great for them so that they can um, share more information about who it is who is, is able to be helped still and who we can work with to get sort of 
to try to bring their numbers down. So there's been a lot of concern. There's been a lot of youth suicide attempts in the past year. 2021 was really hard for teens. And so um, we've been able to use these data to sort of bring that forward to say this is how often this is happening. This is unusual. This is, you know, who we're seeing having these problems and what's going on with them. And that helps people get messages out that are more targeted. And um, that's an important way of getting people to hear the messages we want them to hear. Gotcha. So let's say that like I go to the ER and I have COVID. What am my like my syndromic surveillance data goes wherever it goes? What exactly are you receiving? Are we talking like personal information, like, or is it just like a number in the system? Yeah, it's a question that people often have. And um, the answer is that I would never be able to figure out that it's you unless I happen to know that your birthday and which hospital you went to on what day. So um, all I get is that a person with certain demographic conditions went to a given hospital on a certain day and time. And then so it'll tell me um, the person's gender and their age and the zip code that they have on file. Um, yep, those things. So no names, no contact information, um, nothing like that. And it also will tell me some things about what your medical record says is currently your problem. So it depends a lot on how the electronic record is set up to um, send data to me, but it'll tell me probably like sort of a, a short summary of whatever you told your provider, which might say something like um, has fever and a cough for three days, wasn't, doesn't know that they were exposed to COVID, but um, thinks it might, it might be, maybe it'll say, or, you know, whatever else, like a uh, bicycle crash injury. And so I'll get that little piece of free text. And then I will also get um, diagnosis codes, which this is like a something that is not terribly interesting to most people, but it can be kind of fun to look at. Um, there is a whole system of codes that are that exist for billing purposes and data tracking purposes that um, are what your sort of diagnosis is. And so I can also check those to say like, oh, they were diagnosed with COVID or they were diagnosed with parrot attack. Like there's all kinds of crazy diagnosis codes. When I think of the word surveillance, I think of something that like you're surveilling something over time. So how does syndromic surveillance keep track of the health data of an individual person? It's actually not a great tool as we have it set up now for keeping track of you. It doesn't know who you are and it doesn't know um, if you go see different providers at different hospitals, it can't tell that you're the same person who went to both, you know, prov and regional. It can't know that. So it's really only good at keeping track of how we as a, as a sort of geographic unit of people are doing over time. It is not a substitute for case-based data, which is why we use both systems, you know. So when our nurses are keeping track of like our tuberculosis patients, who we have to keep track of for a long time to make sure that they get the care that they need, they still have to do that using lab tests for that person and keeping, you know, a compliant medical record for that person. And um, I, I can't keep track of them at all in this data. 
I feel like people nowadays are really more concerned than ever with their data being used. What would you say to people who might be concerned about their data being used in this program? The good news is I have no ability to figure out who you are and um, that if I wanted to know, I would have to call the hospital and tell them, hey, I'm Anna and I work at public health and they would verify my identity. And then I would then we would have to work together for the, us to sort of jointly figure out who it is and why you were there that day. So, for example, if I saw someone in there, I was like, oh, that person has an infectious disease that we do need to follow up on. I have to call the hospital and follow up and ask for them to agree to send me those things. There's also um, a whole special section of HIPAA laws that talk about public health and how um, what under what situations public health is allowed to see health data about people and who can who we can see. So we all go through training on protecting people's health information and we have to follow those laws just like your doctor does. To be totally honest, it sounds like you'd kind of have to go pretty far out of your way to figure out who somebody is. Yes, it's um, I don't do it often. Can you tell me what drew you to this kind of work? Uh, I kind of fell into it because it was uh, I was working here and the person who was doing it retired. And so I volunteered to take it on. Um, but uh, it's really fun. It is one of my favorite parts of my job. It's very interesting and it's um, a field that's growing and changing. So we're always learning new ways to use these data and new things to do with them that um, it's it's really fun and an interesting growing area where there's lots of space to figure out what to do next and what to do better, um, which I enjoy a lot. So you took over the spot for somebody that retired. So can you tell me, do you think that your age has any impact on how you understand COVID differently than your older colleagues? <laughs> yeah, uh, probably. Um, certainly, like, there's um, a lot of feelings about technology that are correlated with age. Um, I know that a lot of my colleagues really don't understand syndromic surveillance. You know, I've sort of talked them through it enough times that they've they've got the idea now, but like some of the parts about how it actually works, you know, about how data goes from being typed in by a provider to in my computer are sort of they're just not something that a lot of people are familiar with. And that's, that's fine. That's why we have different people with different skill sets. But I, I think that there are some other parts too. You know, it's very different for people. I don't have any children. People who have kids have a really different experience of the pandemic than people who don't. Um, and being a lot younger, like my personal risk for COVID is a lot lower, but um, I also have a very different sort of set of social obligations that I'm interested in in meeting. And so there's some components about how we, um, how it affects you as a person that are different as well. And I think too, like, I usually don't go in too much for thinking that age and experience are extremely strongly correlated and that there's a big need to, you know, have a ton of experience and be older and wiser and all that jazz. But I definitely noticed like some of my coworkers have they're just a lot more used to experiencing like, you know, um, I don't know. They just have like a, a more, a, they do have more wisdom based on that. Especially I work with a lot of nurses and they are very used to interacting with people and people who are mad at them. 
And that was a new thing for me. That was really difficult at the start of the pandemic. Um, taking calls from people who just wanted to yell at me was new to me. I did not like it. And I hope it doesn't happen again. And I, my nurse colleagues were much sort of better prepared to deal with that than I was. Is that something that happens to you? Are you getting like hate mail and hate calls? Not anymore. Um, and I didn't get nearly as much of it as I've heard, like some of my colleagues in other states were in, where it was very unpleasant for them. And I know, and, you know, I think the leadership here took a lot more heat than I did because I am a small cog in the machine. But, I, you know, we sure did get some really angry people calling and they did not have very nice things to say. That seems kind of nuts to me. It doesn't really seem like, seems like you're just, pardon me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're like running numbers and trying to figure out, like get to the bottom of business. Doesn't sound like you have an evil plan. No, I have, I don't have any plans, let alone evil ones. I don't, people didn't call me as the syndromic surveillance epidemiologist. You know, I also, I manage, I'm our sort of our infection control point person. I was our sort of spokesperson on masks for a long time. And at the start of the pandemic, we did all the contact tracing here in section of epi. And um, so I, I called people to contact trace them and they called me back with their questions or, and, or their feelings. And so that was, those were the times when we got a lot more um, angry callers. We get less of that now, which is great. Hope it stays that way. Yeah, I also hope it stays that way. Um, so, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you might like to add? No, I'm uh, I'm excited to talk to you, and I hope that this is. I think it's a cool data source, and that I, more people should know about it and make use of it. I, I feel like people often think that we are very inefficient, and I like to highlight this as you know. The, your healthcare providers, this data all happens automatically. This is no burden to anyone, and it just takes me um, to put it together a little bit. And then we have, you know, a whole new data source that we can use for all kinds of useful purposes. Totally. I feel like I learned a lot. Like I said, I didn't really <laughs> know what this was until I started writing my questions, and I it's way less <laughs> scary than it sounds at the end yeah. of the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you think that. <laughs> All right, Anna. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. You have a lovely day. It was great to talk to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Atney producer Quinn White speaking with Anna Frick, an epidemiologist for the State Health Department. You've been listening to Podcasts in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost, with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including United Way of Anchorage for the Healthy Communities Funding Program, and the CDC Foundation Arts and Vaccine Confidence Project. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of our funders. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. 
It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Alaska Teen Media. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Orban DeLois. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.